On this episode, we're talking about the hottest shopping streets in North America. You might call them the most well-known shopping street in your city, but we call them Prime Urban Corridors. Music. (laughs) You're listening to Where We Buy. My name is James Cook. I research retail and real estate for JLL. This is the show where we talk with retail experts and we visit shopping spots across the nation and around the world. Today, I'm catching up with Taylor Coyne. Hello, Taylor. Hello. Taylor and I both research retail and real estate for JLL. Um, So Taylor, you are finalizing a big project called City Retail 2020, and it is about prime urban corridors. What is a prime urban corridor? It is a nationally recognized shopping district. It has a concentration of national and international tenants, a lot of times high credit tenants as well. Uh, We name ours sometimes uh, known for the high street spine that runs down them. And we track these across the U.S. and Canada. All right. So a prime urban corridor is a place where you see... uh, luxury retail people out shopping on the street so like uh fifth avenue for example yep and Times square soho rodeo drive the ones where if i name a city you'll probably think of that street either for a tourist reason or just a high shopping trafficked area something that you know most of these corridors you've heard before when i should also say that we have two different types of prime urban corridors we have the existing corridors and then emerging existing is are the ones that i think you'd recognize more right your fifth ave and your Times square but then we also want to make sure that we're tracking our emerging prime urban corridors ones that maybe are newer aren't as established but still are seeing a lot of attention and sometimes are the most popular streets in these cities. So think of here in LA, Abbott Kinney is an emerging prime urban corridor, just because in probably the past 10 years, it's seeing more move-ins and more activity, and it's just becoming more and more popular, but we're starting to see more of those high credit tenant brands versus in the beginning, you see a little bit more bars and restaurants. And so the classification of it being an emerging corridor for somebody who like lives in LA is like, oh, but Kitty's not emerging. It's totally emerged. But we're just talking about from an international standpoint. Is that right? Yes, very much. It's supposed to really think about putting a national and global lens when you look at any of these streets, because of course, there are a lot of streets across the country that are notable and are seeing a lot of attention. But for our purposes, it really needs to have that global attention. You know, even global investors, what streets are you going to look at? Those are the types of corridors that we really try to keep tabs on. Okay, I'm trying to think about places that we've been to recently. Uh, Okay, so what about 3rd Street in Santa Monica? What's that? Miami. Miami. Right, right, right. So Miami Design District we went to recently. That's a prime urban corridor? Yes, it is. Okay. It has a... Actually, Design District is an interesting one because technically that is a new area, right? That's all brand new development. But pretty immediately it became such a destination because of its concentration of luxury brands. It's a pretty unique corridor, actually, compared to the rest of the country. But we were just there and you can walk around and you can tell just by walking down the street of all of these co-tenants that 
co-tendencies that you see. You know, Dior is next to Louis Vuitton and all of these brands that you recognize as these global luxury brands are all concentrated in this one neighborhood. We also went to Wynwood, which is kind of like this transitioning hip new district. Is that an emerging corridor in Miami? We did not cover that this year. However, it is something that we are keeping on our radar because of how much it is concentrated and how many new move-ins and tenants that you'd recognize have moved in. So we've got a couple of corridors sort of on our on the back burner and maybe next year we will adjust our list to include some of those new corridors because it's definitely something that we're keeping an eye on. And Wynwood is starting to really get that national and international attention. We have our own corridor boundaries for all of these streets across the U.S. And we know that over time, these corridors will sprawl out or contract. And we want to make sure, you know, we know that those are always going to be evolving. This isn't supposed to be a static project with a static list, because that's not how retail works. It's constantly evolving, which also makes it interesting to research and write about. The boundaries are are continually changing. You know, what is now a cool location for a store, you know, five or 10 years ago would not have been cool. Yeah, exactly. And as you see rents rise on some of these, you know, the actual high street, the spine of these corridors, you're starting to see tenants move to some of the side streets and that are actually becoming, you know, changing the composition of some of those high, those side streets. And those are becoming more of the spine. I think Toronto is a great example of that. The Bloor Street corridor, while Bloor Street, you know, is still, one of the top streets, you're seeing a lot of spillover onto Yorkville, which is the street just parallel north of it. So we want to keep all of that in mind, which is why our corridors are always morphing. All right, well, let's get into it. And I want to do a quick plug because we talked about Wynwood and we talked about the design district. Listeners, if you want to uh, see what those look like, go to wherewebuy.show. And we recently posted um, videos of our uh, visits to those corridors. Taylor even has a cameo in the design district one. (laughs) It's more of a blooper. So stick around through the entire design district video for the Taylor blooper. You're welcome, everyone. You're welcome. You're going to love it. All right, well, let's get into it here. I want to just, we, we're we not going to cover everything you cover in the report. They're going to need to read the report for that. But I want to hit the big topics. And I know the, the first big one that jumped out right at me, you know, me as a, a resident of Indiana, where we're always at the forefront of fashion. Uh, so right away, street streetwear jumped out at me. Um, explain to the listeners who maybe aren't, um, fashionistas out there, a little bit about streetwear and how it's affecting our, our retail corridors. Uh, streetwear is really interesting. Streetwear has obviously been around a long time, but it is starting to make its way onto these prime urban retail corridors, partially because some of the products that they sell are extremely expensive. We are talking about luxury streetwear. Supreme is probably one of the more well-known ones that more people have heard of. Uh, some of the, Supreme, for example, started as a skate shop, um, selling all kinds of skateboard gear, but has since evolved. And I think, you know, you know, obviously still carries that original tenant or original customer base, but really has evolved um, and broadened its appeal to a lot of different people. A lot of streetwear 
is revolved around drops of different products and shoes and different collaborations, which I think for where we are in the retail world right now, really helps streetwear just because it is this experience. We're talking about these highly personalized goods that you know, there's a limited supply. So I'm going to make sure that I am tracking this brand on social media, or tracking a specific designer on social media. So I understand when some of these products are going to be released. And there's a lot of momentum and excitement when these things happen to get people to the store. Um, I think one of the more interesting, we actually started the report this way, um, that there's a 1975 pair of Nike shoes, um, trainers, sneakers that sold for $437,000, which I think just speaks to there's a huge market for this industry. Um, so it really doesn't, it's not that surprising that we're seeing some of these tenants move into these corridors. Our listeners thought you were going to say $437, and they were doing spit <laughs> takes already. And then you said 470, what was it? $437,000? Yep. And at Sotheby's too. This wasn't, you know, an eBay purchase or anything like this. We're talking true auction, you know, put on by Sotheby's, which I think also just adds to this, this notion of how popular this is becoming. So more and more street streetwear brands are opening up stores within these prime urban corridors. And then you're also seeing streetwear being sold in traditional luxury stores. Is that right? Yep. So I, Toronto, I think, has actually been a really big market for this. Um, you saw, you know, the rapper Drake, he opened his OVO store, which is October's very own. Um, he originally went into Toronto, into the Yorkdale Mall, but has since opened up in Oak Street in Chicago. Um, Toronto's also seen Off-White open up in the Bloor Street corridor. We also have a resale for those types of luxury streetwear items that opened on Queen Street West. So really starting to infiltrate a lot of these corridors. All right, we'll be on the lookout for more streetwear um, the next time there's a big drop. Um We'll wait in line. We'll camp out the night before um, and to get our Supreme underwear or whatever it is. I think this was on the podcast already, but I was at Neighborhood Goods last year in Plano and they had um, a Supreme axe, like not a full size axe, but a personal axe. But because it has the Supreme logo on it, it's uh, it's worth a lot more money. Yeah. Was it about $500? Could have been. Could have been 500,000. All right, what else is going on in prime urban quarters that you noticed this year? Historically, some of our existing prime urban quarters have really large floor plates and... You're talking about the stores. The stores on the corridors have large... Yeah. So they're big stores. Big and stores. They're sh- and they're shrinking now? Yep, exactly. And so, you know, too, they're big stores because a lot of times they're historic corridors um, and historic buildings. So these, you know, they've been around for a really long time. So we're seeing some of these larger floor plates not be as desirable anymore. So maybe you're seeing a bunch of rise in vacancy or maybe it's shadow vacancy. So we're seeing some of these cities step in because... One, and you know, all of these corridors are really important to the fabric of these cities, um, you know, for tourism. So we're seeing city governments step in to essentially ensure that these shopping neighborhoods stay vibrant and active. Uh, Union Square in San Francisco is an example. It's definitely had some larger floor plate stores, especially surrounding the park. 
Um, so the city has come in and because San Francisco especially has such a strong office market that some of these landlords are seeing retailers struggle. So they want to find that new highest and best use. So they've been thinking about trying to convert their spaces into office. But the more we convert to office, the more, you know, we reduce that vibrant streetscape in one of the more famous corridors in the country. So they've stepped in to update their zoning code a little bit to both give flexibility to the landlords to in order to help them economically as well. So they've really just lightened up some of the restrictions that were previously in place to give more flexibility to the landlords while also preventing everyone from converting all of their space into co-working or some kind of office space. And that will essentially remove all of the retail. And is it happening? Are you seeing that city city governments getting involved in these corridors and in other markets or is it just in San Francisco? No, we're seeing them across the country. Um, Another, I think, notable one also in California is Santa Monica stepping in for Third Street Promenade. Uh, Arguably one, you know, a huge tourist destination, especially with the pier right next door. But again, Third Street Promenade also has some large blocks of space and over time is just maybe fallen behind a little bit, even though I think there is some more momentum recently. But part of this is this city involvement. Um, They are drafting a new master plan for the entire promenade, which will improve just the streetscape. Um, I think they might be experimenting, you know, how can we how can the retailers and landlords better utilize that center pedestrian paseo? You know, does that mean that we can put some outdoor seating in the middle to have diners out in the middle of the promenade. Um, You know, obviously still in its beginning phases, but this conversation has been going on for a long time, but I think is actually finally starting to move forward after a recent city council meeting. Uh, But it will be really exciting to see what master plans come out for that. Um, It's such a unique spot right by the ocean and right by the pier. So I think that's an exciting new step forward for Third Street Promenade. Yeah. So it's interesting. You mentioned Third Street where the spine of that corridor on Third Street is totally for pedestrians only. They don't allow traffic. And I was thinking, so in Miami at the design district, they've got part of it's a Paseo, right? Where there's, where it's just for people only, if I remember correctly. Are there any other examples in, in the corridors that we track where, you know, they've closed it off to, to traffic? Funny that you mentioned Miami, because the other example in our report is Lincoln Road. So Lincoln Road and uh, Third Street Promenade actually have a lot of similarities that it's a about a three, I think Lincoln Road's a little bit longer, but you know, a three to four block pedestrian paseo completely cut off to cars. And again, Lincoln Road is still the most popular shopping destination in Miami. You all probably know because you're all avid listeners that we were recently (laughs) in Miami for the Research Connections Conference that ICSE hosts. And we heard from the I believe it was someone from the tourism board who said, you know, regardless of, you know, if you're shopping or not, Lincoln Road is still the most popular destination for tourists, which really says something. So what the city is doing, and this, again, you know, like any public process has taken a long time, but they are 
stepping in and working with some of the landlords to develop some new regulations to spur some new development in the area. So again, Lincoln Road also has some large floor plates, older buildings, some, you know, some rising shadow vacancy. So they're going to now allow for some more flexibility to include some hotels so that you're going to be able to build on some of those existing buildings and that, you know, there were some issues with how big you could have your hotel room. Uh, James Cornerfield Operations, which is the landscape architect that is responsible for the High Line, you know, that group has also developed a master plan for the corridor, uh, similar to the one in Santa Monica that I was talking about, right, that's really just going to help enhance the public realm. Um, is there a lot of development going on in the prime urban corridors? A lot of these places haven't seen any kind of development activity in a long time, um, be it because of older zoning codes. Um, So this year, we've seen a few examples where we're seeing some new activity. And it's really going to, I think, entice a lot of retailers to come in. um, Just because obviously, if there's development activity, we're going to have some new spaces, which is really, you know, appealing, uh, gives some people some added flexibility of just not having old outdated buildings. Uh, I think one of the interesting examples is M Street in Georgetown, um, in DC, that is also very historic corridor, cobblestone streets. It's really beautiful. But because of some of these older buildings and the very expensive rents, there's a little bit, you know, lack of flexibility there. So for the first time, we're going to see a new development come in that's going to bring in a whole bunch of new retail space. And I think just add a little bit new, new excitement into the area and just give some, you know, retailers a different type of option. You know, a lot of people obviously want to be on M Street just because of its notoriety. But having that new injection of, you know, capital, but also space, I think is going to be really exciting. Any other new types of tenants, uh, new retailers that you're you're seeing in the prime urban corridors? Yes, it's all about experience, and specifically the Experience Museum. I think the, so. It's not. It's not a real. It's not a uh, Smithsonian institution we're talking about here. No, not um, Smithsonian type. Uh, more think Museum of Ice Cream, Museum of Color. Uh, the Museum of Ice Cream is one of the more popular ones, has hit a few cities and is finally going to be opening up its permanent location in Soho on Broadway, which going back to large floor plates, Broadway typically has larger floor plates. So I think this is a really good use of space because they're able to really expand, give you a lot of different options when going into the museum. So things can constantly be changing, you know, switching out exhibits. It's a multi-floor space. So I think that's a really smart move for the Museum of Ice Cream. There are a series of staged Instagram uh, moments that are made to make it look like that you're having fun, but really to create FOMO for your friends. Is that (laughs) Am I being a little cynical about these, Taylor? Yeah, you are being cynical, but I also think you are spot on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at at any rate, um, I noticed that um, our friends at Candytopia um, have uh, partnered with uh, Toys R Us to create... um, with that, with that intellectual property uh, to create a, a Toys R Us experience. I know they opened one up on Michigan Avenue, and that one's a temporary one. I think that's like for three or four months um, in, in Chicago. Are, are there other permanent ones or most of them just pop-ups? Most of them are pop-ups. 
because of the nature of because it is so high experience that's, you know, you kind of want to go, maybe you'll go once or twice. Um, however, I would say Candytopia probably does a good job of making sure that exhibits change depending on where, you know, where you are. Um, but I think and while this one's a little different, I still think it is so high experience. And it really is like a museum. I mean, the Starbucks roastery, the biggest one in the world just opened up on Michigan Ave. And that is most certainly permanent, or at least they hope it will be because it's very big. Um, but it looks beautiful. They took the former crate and barrel space right on Michigan Ave. Um, I have not personally been but from the photos, it looks beautiful, it has been packed. And so of course, you can still go and get your latte. But it's also about a learning experience of how do you roast coffee? How does this how does harvesting, you know, the beans work? And how do we how does it end up getting into your cup? So it is also, you know, this museum, it's a learning experience, which I think is uh, really neat. And I'm excited that we're going to go see the one in meatpacking, which also opened up, I believe it, it's opening day it was December of last year, but we missed it. So we're going to be checking it out next week. And I'm looking forward to that as well. One of the things that they've done with the roasteries that they've done a good job of is they don't all feel the same. Um, each one is in essence like a Willy Wonka of coffee with the museum elements and different bars and restaurants and coffee bars and educational areas. But they've really taken the time to design each to look and feel um, kind of tailored to the city. So the one in Seattle has a different feel than the one in Chicago, which has a different feel than the one in New York. And I'm, you know, they have spared no expense. So uh, good job, Starbucks. We're going to go and, and check it out. And we're going to we'll contribute what um, enough to buy us a couple of coffees when when we're there to help them pay back for all their tenant improvements. Yes, exactly. Four ninety nine. I'm sure. You know, every <laughs> bit counts. So, uh, what about prices? Like rental prices, sales prices? Are the rental rates in these corridors for retail spaces the same? Are they going up, going down? It's a mixed bag. It's definitely a mixed bag. Um, in some corridors, we're seeing rents go up. In some, we're seeing them go down. In some, they've stayed static. Um, here in LA, Melrose is staying pretty static year over year. Um, but in New York, you know, also, I think New York might be also, you know, in a, kind of an extreme example, just because we saw pricing be so high, that rents got so high. And obviously, I think we've all heard the stories, you know, our Fifth Ave rent just got so high, we've seen retailers move out. Uh, so some of those rents are, you know, falling back to more of a where the market should be. Well, I am looking forward to uh, having this report out there for everybody to read. It's called City Retail. It's City Retail 2020. And uh, how can people uh, get a hold of it? When's it coming out? It will be out next Wednesday, December 10th. If you go to jll.com and search for City Retail, it'll come up after, after next Wednesday. And if not, you can email Taylor, her personal email address. It, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> if you're having trouble finding the report, go to wherewebuy.show and go in the contact section. And there's an email address that you can reach out to us and we'll send you a copy of the report. All right. So, Taylor, let's do a little behind the scenes here. We're going to be heading out to New York next week for the ICSC National Conference. Um, if you are hearing this before December 10, 2019, 
there's still time to make it out there. And if you do, uh, reach out to us, let us know. We'll try to meet up. Um, while we're there, we're going to be meeting up with clients, of course, and we're also going to be re- recording uh, quite a few videos and podcasts. I'm going to be moderating some panels at the the conference at the Javits Center. Um, Taylor, you've been working on this schedule. What um what are we doing next week? Thankfully, because of where the Javits Center is, adjacent to Hudson Yards, that will personally be my first stop. Um, for those who want to come with me, I'm going to go on the vessel. Um, but we are going to and what, record what's a video the and. Um, the vessel is a public art installation. Uh, it is stairs. It looks like a honeycomb. I am excited to check it out. It is in the middle of Hudson Yards and you have to have a reservation to go. It is free. If you pick a specific time, I'll report back on my experience. I am excited. Um, and obviously we'll be checking out Hudson Yards as well. We're going to go to, um, the food hall there and check out all the shops. And that's just going to be really exciting. Uh, we're also going to be recording a video at Showfields, which is a, you know, talk about experience. Supposedly the the most. What do they call themselves? The most interesting store in the world? Let's see. Yep. The most interesting store in the world. So we actually had to make reservations for this for house, the House of Showfields, which is a special ticketed. Now it's free, but you do have to get a ticket in advance. And it's a retail experience. If you guys have heard of things like Sleep No More, which is like interactive theater where you know, you're not sitting out in the audience watching a theater, but you're actually having the theater occur around you. Well, this is that done in a retail setting. So I think what that means is there are people there, you're in a store, but there's people playing characters and maybe you're involved in some kind of narrative. Yeah, and I think that they showcase a lot of brands. So I'm also imagining maybe different rooms or different areas where we can go and experience and interact with some of these brands that maybe don't have physical locations or maybe they only have one or two. So I think it's really just highly interactive. The only thing that I am certain of is that when we enter, we will be going down a slide. Oh, nice. So we'll be shooting um, some video of that that we'll be posting uh, on the website. So stay tuned for more of that. Before we head there, though, we're going to interview a longtime hero of mine, Paco Underhill. Um, If you guys uh, are aware of his book, Why We Buy, uh, which is strikingly similar to the title of this podcast. Yes, it might have been a a small homage. Uh, He wrote Why We Buy, and he also wrote The Call of the Mall. Uh, He has a company called EnviroCell, and we're going to be going and meeting him at the EnviroCell headquarters and uh, doing an interview with him for a future podcast episode. Then after Showfields, we're going to go to the Starbucks Roastery, and then we will essentially walk down the street and head to Neighborhood Goods, which is opening, I believe, this weekend, right, in Chelsea Market? Yeah, I think they're opening this weekend. uh, And for listeners, go back and check out our recent interview with Matt Alexander, CEO of Neighborhood Goods, to hear more about that. And um, I'm sure we will be shooting some video of that because I'm really curious to find out what the store is like. Matt was uh, not able, when I interviewed him, he wasn't able to reveal what the 
the food was because they always have a food and beverage component to their stores. And I've since discovered is beignets, which I think is an interesting choice. They're going to have a beignet-oriented, grab-and-go, fast-casual kind of food component. I don't know. We'll see what it's all about. On Wednesday, we're recording four live podcasts. Um, so uh, if you're attending the conference, heck, even if you're not, just come down to the Javits Center on December 11, um, 2 p.m., 2.30, 3, and 3.30. We're recording um, in, there's going to be a podcast booth that's kind of right inside the main entrance at the Javits Center. So you won't even need a conference badge to get to that podcast area. We're going to be interviewing the CEO and COO of the Ginger Companies, um, and they've got a couple of different experiential concepts. They've got an escape room concept, and they've got some other entertainment concepts with locations in D.C. and New York and more to come. So we're going to find out more about that. At 2.30, I'm going to interview Howard Samuels, um, and he's a location-based entertainment uh, expert consultant. So we're going to be talking about things like virtual reality and, you know, the Lego store, and probably we'll be talking about different museum experiences and stuff like that. Um, and I like Howard because he's very practical, so we'll get into the nuts and bolts. Um, after that, we're going to be talking to retail expert Dana Telsey at 3 o'clock. And then at 3.30, um, Eldon Scott, who's the CEO of Urban Space. Um, and Urban Space operates probably... you. That's the most popular food hall in Manhattan, right? Is is Urban Space Vanderbilt, would you say? Just as far as like number of visitors? Yeah, I have to imagine. And now they have, I think, five concepts in Manhattan now. That's a lot. So all of those, if you're not able to make it, um, those will all be podcast episodes that we'll be releasing. Um, if you are going to be at the conference, I'm going to be moderating an entertainment panel um, at 9.30 that Wednesday morning on the food stage. Uh, and I don't know exactly where the food stage is, but there is a food stage. And then Thursday morning at 9.30, I'm going to be moderating a panel on location-based entertainment. Um, I think we've got an executive from Unibuy, uh, Rodamco, Westfield. So if you're not going to be in New York, you should subscribe to Where We Buy on the iPhone podcast app, Spotify, um, you'll get all of these interviews on the device of your choice, or you can go to wherewebuy.show, where you'll find not only our podcast, but also the many videos that we produce, which are just mini versions of the podcast. Can't wait to climb that vessel. Um, so Taylor, have you seen anything in the world, in the retail world recently, and you were like, wow, that's really interesting. If you did, how would you let the world know about it? Oh, I would definitely come and call you on that number and leave a voicemail on the podcast because I've definitely done that before. You'd leave a message on the Where We Buy hotline and we'll use your voice on an upcoming show. Give us a call at 602-633-4061 and be sure to tell us your name and where you're calling from. Our theme music is Run in the Night by the Good Lords under Creative Commons License. Black Friday weekend has just passed. You did a bunch of uh, holiday-oriented shopping? Yes, I did. Self-gifting? Were, uh, a lot of self-gifting involved? Yeah, there was a lot of self-gifting. Um, like, 
95% was self-gifting. And again, no shame, no shame. But I did have a good time. And I will say I'm impressed by everyone's speedy shipping. And the experience was great. And I think I really benefited this year because of the shortened holiday shopping time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Everyone started their deals, what seemed to me at least earlier than usual. So it wasn't a mad dash on one day. I really spread out the self-gifting over multiple days over the Thanksgiving break, and it was delightful. Well, I've been paying close attention to the holiday shopping season, but not for me personally. For me personally, I'm a real procrastinator, I think. I think it's about a week. Yeah, it's about seven or eight days before the 25th that I kind of wake up and realize I have to take care of these these holiday activities that I actually get out and shop. So I'm probably... Probably not the best gifter in the world, I would say, Taylor. Gifting is actually one of my love languages. Say what now? Yeah, we don't have to get into it. Have you ever taken that quiz? You should take it. It's really interesting. What? No. What are some other love languages? It's uh, acts of service, gifting, words of something, quality time, and another one. And it's all about, you're supposed to, you know, someone, I forget who, wrote a whole book about it, right, that helps you be a better communicator of understanding, like, what, how you share your feelings and how, you know, your friends, family, significant other share their feelings so you can understand what is meaningful to someone else. Gotcha. And this is self-help with Taylor Coyne. (laughs) (laughs) My love language is a hot cup of coffee, which I'm sipping on right now. My love language is cold brew. Mm. Potato, potato. 